0: You're listening to a chapel service recorded at Asbury Theological Seminary in Wilmore, Kentucky. For more information, visit asburyseminary.edu.
1: Apologetics is more than winning an argument or a debate. It's interpreting the history of Jesus in the context of the various disciplines of thought across the curriculum. All of this for the purpose of inviting non-believers to have and to enjoy a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and to enrich the experience and understanding of believers. Let me tell you something that happened uh, this last week. I was giving a lecture myself in Orlando on our campus down there and uh, it was a lecture on the theme of apologetics. And I cited Dr. Craig as an eminent role model of what that's all about, and announced that he would be here this week. Afterwards, a student came up to me and said, this was his first course he'd ever had in seminary, and said to me, I was a philosophy major in the university. None of my professors were Christians, and I had no one to help me to relate my faith with reason until I began to read the apologetical writings of Dr. William Lane Craig. He says, I have one of my books. Would you take it to him and have him autograph it? <laughs> and uh, he did, in fact. He autographed it yesterday. I gave it to him, and it's on the way back to Orlando. Dr. Craig has touched the lives of many people that he has never seen for his writings, and how blessed we are to have him here with us. And to deliver this last lecture in this series is the universe designed?
0: Thank you, Larry. very much uh, for those encouraging words. I have just enjoyed tremendously my time here at asbury uh The conversations with the faculty have been stimulating. I've enjoyed meeting some of the students. It's just been a really uh fun time for me and not least of which uh, has been the wonderful singing in these chapel services. I am so glad that the great hymns of the church are being kept alive here at Asbury Seminary. Um, where, do you, where, where in contemporary music do you find a hymn like the one that we sang this morning? I mean, that is fantastic. So I, I applaud you on the, uh, the worship that you have here. The heavens declare the glory of God, wrote the psalmist and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night declares knowledge. There are no words, their voice is not heard, yet their voice goes out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. It was not only the Hebrew poets who saw in the world about them eloquent, silent testimony to the existence of nature's designer, The Greek philosophers such as Plato and Aristotle also saw in the natural world the fingerprints of God. Plato said that there are two things which lead men to believe in God, the soul and the order of all things under the dominion of the mind which ordered the universe. Aristotle imagined a race of men who had lived all their lives in underground caverns but who one day escaped uh, from underground to see the external outer world. And when, he said, they viewed the sun and the sky, the beauty and the cycle of nature, the clouds, the uh, night when it fell and the stars bespangling the night sky with the moon and the planets, then, says Aristotle, most certainly they would have judged that God exists and that all these marvelous works are the handiwork of God. The inference to a designer of the cosmos is thus as old as human thought itself. In modern times, however, the design argument fell upon hard times. It was vigorously attacked by the skeptic David Hume in the 18th century. But even more influential was Charles Darwin's publication of the origin of the species in the 19th. Darwin's theory of undirected biological evolution by natural selection Claim to explain the appearance of design without the need of a designer. According to Richard Dawkins, who is one of the leading contemporary critics of divine design, Darwin made it possible to become an intellectually fulfilled atheist. But just as the books on the design argument appeared to be closed, a remarkable thing has happened during the last third of this century. Recent discoveries have served to breathe new life into the hypothesis of divine design. Today, the argument is as vigorous and the debate among scientists and philosophers as lively as it has ever been. In yesterday's lecture, I described how contemporary cosmologies, discovery of the beginning of the universe in the Big Bang 15 billion years ago, represents, as it were, a a signpost of transcendence pointing beyond the natural world to its origin in a supernatural creator of the cosmos. This morning, I would like to explore other signposts of transcendence in the natural world that point to a designer of the cosmos. First of all, then, the fine-tuning of the universe for life. Central to the biblical doctrine of creation is the doctrine that the universe is the product of intelligent design. The Bible says, The Lord created the heavens. He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. Isaiah 45, 18. Only recently have scientists begun to discover how incredible a feat it is to design a universe to be habitable by life forms like ourselves. Scientists originally thought that whatever the initial conditions of the universe were, eventually, given enough time, the universe would evolve. Complex life forms like ourselves. But during the last 30 years or so, scientists have been stunned by the discovery of how complex and delicate a balance of initial conditions must be given in the Big Bang in order for the universe to permit the origin and uh, and evolution of intelligent life in the cosmos. In the various fields of physics and astrophysics, classical cosmology, quantum mechanics, and biochemistry, discoveries have repeatedly disclosed that the existence of intelligent life depends upon a delicate balance of physical constants and quantities given in the Big Bang which are such that if any one of these constants or quantities were to be even slightly altered, the balance would be destroyed and life would not exist. For example, the British physicist PCW Davies estimates that a change in the force of gravity or of electromagnetism by even one part in 10 to the 140th power would destroy the possibility of star formation and hence there would be no planets and therefore no habitable universe. Or again, Stephen Hawking has calculated that a change in the rate of the universe's expansion one second after the Big Bang by even one part in a million million would have caused the universe to recollapse into a hot fireball. The density of the universe at that time was within a critical value to one part out of ten to the sixtieth power. Or again, Roger Penrose of Oxford University has said that the initial conditions of the Big Bang involve a fantastically low entropy state that seems to be inexplicable. In order for this to arise by chance, says Penrose, the accuracy of the Creator's aim would have to be on the order of one part out of 10 to the power of 10 to the power of 123. Penrose says, I cannot even recall seeing anything in physics whose accuracy is known to approach even remotely a figure like one part in 10 to the 10 to the 123rd. Our universe thus appears to be balancing on a razor's edge that allows for the existence of ourselves, of intelligent life. From the moment of its inception, the universe appears to have been uh, incomprehensibly fine-tuned for the existence of intelligent life. Now, how is this to be explained? Some scientists have hypothesized that perhaps this is due to physical necessity, that the universe had to be this way, that there's some sort of unknown theory of everything, which, if discovered, would explain why the values and constants have to be as they are. But this seems, on the face of it, to be extraordinarily implausible. This would require us to believe that a life-prohibiting universe is virtually, physically impossible. But surely it does seem possible that the universe would not be life-permitting. If the primordial balance of matter over antimatter had been slightly differently proportioned, if the universe had expanded just a little bit more slowly or just a bit more quickly, Uh, or if the early entropy state of the universe had been adjusted in just a little marginal way, any of these adjustments and more would have destroyed the balance and prevented a life-permitting universe. And yet, all of these seem to be perfectly possible physically. And thus, the person who maintains that the universe must, of physical necessity, be life-permitting is taking an extraordinarily radical line which requires uh, strong proof. But there is no proof. This is simply a conjecture that's put forth as a bare possibility. Moreover, there are good reasons to reject this alternative. First of all, there are models of the universe which are different from the existing universe. As Professor John Leslie, a philosopher of science at the University of Guelph, explains, the claim that blind necessity is involved that universes whose laws or constants are slightly different aren't real physical possibilities is eroded by the various physical theories, particularly theories of random symmetry breaking, which show how a varied ensemble of universes might be generated. If, as Leslie maintains, quantum indeterminacy is real, that is, on the subatomic level there is real indeterminacy, then it must be possible for the universe to be different than it is because many of these constants and quantities are the result of transitions from indeterminate quantum states or quantum processes which are random in nature. Moreover, even if the laws of nature were physically necessary, they still have to be supplemented by initial boundary conditions. As Professor PCW Davies says, even if the laws of physics were unique, It doesn't follow that the physical universe itself is unique. The laws of physics must be augmented by cosmic initial conditions. There is nothing in present ideas about laws of initial conditions remotely to suggest that their consistency with the laws of physics would imply uniqueness. Far from it. It seems, then, that the physical universe does not have to be the way it is. It could have been otherwise. And thus it seems that one cannot say that this incredible fine-tuning of the universe for intelligent life is simply the result of physical necessity. Well then, could it be instead the result of chance? Well, again, this hypothesis seems extraordinarily unlikely. Sometimes people will say, well, look, it's like winning the lottery. Any particular person's winning it is extraordinarily improbable, but somebody has to win it. Now, what this objection helps to bring out is that it's not just the improbability that's at stake here. Rather, what we're talking about is the specified probability that a universe which is life-permitting should exist. The correct analogy would be a lottery in which a billion, billion, billion black balls are mixed together with one white ball, and then one ball is drawn at random from the collection. Now, while it is true that it is uh, equally improbable that any single ball should be the one selected, nevertheless, it is overwhelmingly more probable that whichever ball you pick, it will be black rather than white. And in exactly the same way, even though the existence of any particular universe may be equally improbable with any other, it is overwhelmingly and comprehensibly more probable that whichever universe exists, it will be life-prohibiting rather than a life-permitting universe. So it's not just the probability of some universe or other existing, but rather the probability of a life-permitting universe existing. Now, other times, certain scientists have tried to get around this by saying, well, look, we shouldn't really be surprised at the improbability of the fine-tuning of the initial conditions of the universe. Because, after all, if they weren't finely tuned, then we wouldn't be here to notice it. Given that we are here, we should expect the universe to be finely tuned. But I think that the fallacy of this reasoning can be exposed easily by means of a parallel illustration. Imagine that you were traveling in the third world and you were arrested on trumped-up drug charges and dragged in front of a firing squad of 100 trained marksmen, all with rifles aimed at your heart to be executed. And you hear the command given, ready, aim, fire! And you hear the deafening roar of the guns. And then you observe that that you're still alive. That all of the 100 marksmen missed. Now, what would you conclude? Well, I guess I really shouldn't be surprised that they all missed. After all, if they hadn't all missed, I wouldn't be here to be surprised about it. (laughs) Given that I'm here, I should expect them all to miss. Well, of course not. You would immediately suspect that they all missed on purpose. That the whole thing was a setup engineered by some person for some reason. And in exactly the same way, given the enormous incomprehensible improbability of the fine-tuning of the universe for intelligent life, it is rational to believe that this is not the result of chance, but of design. Now, some theorists have tried to rescue this objection by postulating the existence of other parallel universes besides our own, So that by chance alone, all of the different fine-tuned values of the universe would come to exist. And in at least one universe out of all of these parallel universes, one by chance would occur in which the finely tuned conditions of uh, the universe for life would obtain. And we happen to be in that one. And therefore, no further explanation needs to be sought. We shouldn't be surprised that we exist in that one universe because all universes, all values exist. But this many uh, parallel universes scenario, I think, faces many difficult objections. Number one, notice that this theory is no more scientific and no less metaphysical than the hypothesis of a divine designer. Since there is absolutely no contact between our universe and these parallel Universes which are in other space-times, there's absolutely no direct evidence of their existence. There's no way that they know to know that they exist. It is a pure metaphysical conjecture that there are such parallel worlds. Moreover, it's not just that there are parallel universes that we're being asked to accept here. In order to guarantee that by chance alone the finely tuned values would obtain in one of this set of parallel universes, there must be an indefinite number of these parallel universes in order to guarantee by chance alone that the finely tuned values will exist in one of them. And it's not just that there must be an indefinite number of these universes, they must also be randomly ordered in the values that are taken by these constants and quantities. Otherwise, all of them could simply take the same values. So we're not being asked just to swallow the existence of parallel universes but parallel universes which are indefinite in number and randomly ordered. Now, by comparison to that, it seems to me that belief in theism is much simpler. As a metaphysical hypothesis, the belief in one designer is more economical and simpler than this bloated ontology of the parallel universes in the many-world scenario. And therefore, by Occam's razor, it seems to me that the hypothesis of theism ought to be preferred. Secondly, There is no known mechanism for generating such an ensemble of parallel universes. They're just said to be out there, just to exist. But there's no explanation of how they would be generated. And those theories that have been offered for trying to explain the existence of parallel universes, like inflationary theory, themselves involve fine-tuning in order to get the inflation started so that it just pushes the problem back a notch and the fine-tuning is not explained away. Finally, number three, there are independent reasons for belief in the existence of a divine being. For example, the origin of the universe, which we looked at yesterday. But there is no independent reason whatsoever to believe that there exist these parallel universes. The only evidence for the existence of these parallel universes is the fine-tuning of the universe for intelligent life itself. But that fine-tuning is equally evidence for a divine designer. And since we have independent evidence for the existence of God, it seems to me that the hypothesis of design is preferable. And thus divine design, I think, is arguably superior to the metaphysical hypothesis of the many-worlds theory. So in all of these cases, it seems to me that the better explanation is intelligent design, given the incomprehensible improbability of the initial conditions of the universe being fine-tuned for life, it is far more plausible to believe, as the Bible says, that this is the result of intelligent design, rather than the atheistic alternative that the universe, when it popped into being uncaused, out of absolutely nothing, just happened to be, by chance, fine-tuned to an incomprehensible precision for the existence of intelligent life. Number two, the origin of life. Despite the remarkable fine-tuning of the universe for life, the fact remains that these initial conditions that I've described do not guarantee that life will arise in the universe. They are necessary conditions for the origin of life, but far from sufficient. Even given these initial conditions of the universe, the origin of life remains astronomically improbable. Now, most of us were probably taught in grade school or high school uh, that life originated in the so-called primordial soup by processes of chance chemical reactions. Back in the 1950s, Stanley Miller was able to synthesize amino acids by passing electric sparks through a methane gas. And while amino acids are not alive, uh, proteins are made out of amino acids, and proteins are found in living things. And so the hope was that somehow the origin of life could be explained by chemical evolution. What the average layman does not realize, however, is that all of these old chemical origin of life scenarios have, been, have broken down and been abandoned. This has been wonderfully documented in the book, The Mystery of Life's Origin, by Faxton, Bradley, and Olson. They point out that there probably never was such a thing as the so-called primordial soup because the natural processes of destruction and dilution would have prevented the chemical reaction supposedly leading to life. Thermodynamics also poses an insuperable problem for such scenarios, for there's no way to harness the raw energy of the environment, say in the form of lightning or the sun, in order to make it drive chemical evolution forward. Furthermore, no way existed to preserve the products of chemical evolution for the supposed second step in the development. The same processes that formed them would serve to destroy them again. Finally, it was originally thought that billions of years were available for life to originate by chance. But the problem is that we now have fossil evidence of life existing as early as 3.8 billion years ago. That means that the window of opportunity during which life had to originate by chance alone is being progressively closed, and it's now down to only about 25 million years Uh, Just last week in uh, Atlanta, Thaxton says he has heard estimates now where the window has been closed to about a million years for this to have happened. Far too short for these chance scenarios. For all of these reasons and more, the whole field of the origin of life studies is in turmoil today. All of the old theories have broken down. There's no new theory on the horizon. The origin of life on Earth is scientifically inexplicable. Francis Crick, who discovered the DNA molecule, says that the origin of life is, and I quote, almost a miracle, end quote. <laughs> now, sometimes people will say that if the universe is infinite in size, then no matter how improbable life is, it will originate somewhere in the universe by chance. But the problem with this objection is that it could be used to explain away any improbable event so that rational behavior would become impossible. No matter how improbable something is, it could be explained away by saying that in an infinite universe, it would happen somewhere. But can you imagine the following dialogue taking place at a poker table in a West Texas saloon? Tex, you're a dirty cheating skunk. Every time you deal, you get four aces. Well, Slim, I know it looks a mighty bit suspicious that every time I deals, I gets four aces. But you got to understand in this here infinite universe, there's an infinite number of poker games going on somewheres. So, chances are that in some of them, every time I deals, I gets four aces. So, sh- put up that shooting iron and shut your yapping deal. Now, if you were all slim, would you sit down for another hand of cards? I hope not. On this kind of reasoning, in fact, you could actually never have any evidence that the universe is infinite. Because if the universe is infinite, then it becomes impossible to assess the probability or the improbability of the evidence for it being infinite. And thus the objection is ultimately self-defeating and cannot be rationally affirmed. Now, the Bible doesn't say how life originated. It just says, God said, Let the land put forth vegetation, let the waters swarm with fish and other life. The Bible is not a science book, and it doesn't tell us whether God used means or what means He used to create life. But the scientific evidence is certainly in accord with the origin of life's being, in Francis Crick's words, a miracle. That is to say, an event which was supernaturally wrought by God. The Bible and science are certainly not in conflict on this issue. In fact, if anything, I think, the scientific evidence is clearer than the Bible is, that life's origin was due to a miraculous act of the creator God of the universe. Number three, the evolution of complex life forms. Even given the initial fine-tuning of the initial conditions of the universe, and even given the origin of life, there's still no guarantee that life would develop into complex organisms. So, where did they come from? Well, now this is an issue on which Christians themselves have a variety of viewpoints. Some Christians take Genesis to describe a literal six-day creation week, which took place about 10 to 20,000 years ago. But it seems to me that there are clues in the text of Genesis itself that a literal creation week is not intended by the author. For example, on the third day, we read, and God said, let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed, and seed, uh, fruit trees bearing fruit, each according to its kind upon the earth. And it was so. Now, We all know how long it takes, say, for fruit trees to grow and eventually bear fruit. Think of a California redwood or a sequoia, for example. Now, unless we're to imagine this happening like time-lapse photography, like in Walt Disney's movie The Living Desert, where the plants burst up out of the ground and quickly grow up and mature into full fruition and blossom out in the trees, pop out on the fruit, bam, 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 bam then this must have taken longer than 24 hours. Uh, And I just find it very hard to believe that the author of Genesis wanted his readers to imagine things popping up out of the ground and growing into fruit trees like a film being run on Fast Forward. And notice that I'm arguing this on the basis of the text itself, not on the basis of what modern science tells us. In fact, historically... Neither Jews nor Christians interpreted Genesis 1 as referring to 24-hour time periods, as the uh, Jewish scholar Nathan Nathan Aviesar points out in his recent book, In the Beginning. Aviesar quotes a number of ancient rabbinical scholars on Torah and Talmud to prove the point, and one could have also added early Christian uh, church fathers like Irenaeus, Oregon, Basil, and Augustine, to show the same thing. Now, I'm not denying that a literal reading of Genesis 1 is one legitimate interpretation, but it can hardly claim to be the only legitimate interpretation permitted by the text, nor does it represent the historic understanding of the majorities of Jews and Christians. But if I'm correct about this, then Genesis tells us virtually nothing about how God made the plants and animals. Did he create them out of nothing? Did he create them out of previously existing life forms? Did he use evolution to create them gradually? These are scientific questions which the Bible does not address. The main point of the Genesis story is to tell us that God is the creator of everything in the world. The sun and the moon and the animals and the plants are not deities. They're just Creatures, God made them. How he did so seems to be left open. Now, what that means is that the Christian is free to follow the evidence where it leads. And in this respect, the Christian has a decided advantage over the scientific naturalist. For you see, if God does not exist, then evolution is the only game in town. No matter how improbable the odds No matter what the evidence says, evolution's got to be true because there just is nothing outside the physical world to explain the origin of biological complexity. And thus the naturalist's conclusion is really determined in advance by his philosophy, not by the evidence. And this is the real merit, I think, of Philip Johnson's book, Darwin on Trial. Johnson sees clearly the central point that the grand theory of Darwinian evolution is not something that can just be read off the evidence, but it is rather predicated upon a prior philosophical commitment to naturalism. What the evidence supports is microevolution, change within limits. But even the most conservative fundamentalist agrees with that, since he believes, for example, that all human races evolved from Adam and Eve. So change within certain types is no big deal. The grand Darwinian theory represents a huge leap or extrapolation from microevolution, which everybody agrees with, to macroevolution. But the problem is that examples are common in science where such extrapolations fail. So... The question is, why should we think that the extrapolation from micro to macro evolution is legitimate? Well, in order to answer that question, we need to look more closely at the two main components of the Darwinian theory. First, the doctrine of common ancestry, and second, the mechanisms of genetic mutation and natural selection. And here I want to recommend two books for those interested in these topics, Michael Denton's book, Evolution, A Theory in Crisis, and Michael Behe's best-selling book, Darwin's Black Box. Now, according to the doctrine of common ancestry, all life forms evolved from a single primordial ancestor. In favor of this doctrine is the fact that almost all living organisms share the same genetic code, or DNA, Now, one could say that God simply used the same basic design plan to make all of the different kinds of unrelated organisms that he created. But it might seem more plausible that the genetic similarity of all living things is due to their being related to each other, all of them sharing a common ancestor. On the other hand, the fossil evidence stands starkly in opposition to the doctrine of common ancestry. When Darwin first proposed his theory, one of its major weaknesses was that there are no organisms today which stand midway between other organisms as the transitional forms between them. But Darwin answered this by saying that these transitional animals existed in the past and are now extinct but eventually their remains will be discovered. As paleontologists have unearthed fossil remains, however, they have not found the anticipated transitional forms. Instead, they've just found more distinct, unrelated animals and plants which have died off. Now, sure, there are a few suspected transitional forms like the Archaeopteryx, uh, a bird which has certain reptilian features, but If Darwinian theory were true, we're not talking about a few isolated examples of missing links. Rather, as Michael Denton emphasizes, there should be literally millions and millions of these transitional forms in the fossil record. Think, for example, of all of the intermediate forms that would have to exist in order for a bat and a whale to have a common ancestor. This problem can no longer be dismissed by saying that we haven't dug deep enough. The transitional forms haven't been found because they're not there. Thus, the evidence concerning the doctrine of common ancestry is mixed. The DNA evidence lends some support to it, but the fossil evidence goes against it. Well, what about the mechanisms of genetic mutation and natural selection, which are supposed to drive evolution forward? According to the theory, evolutionary development occurs because random mutations produce new features in living things, and those that are advantageous for survival are preserved and get reproduced. I know of no evidence at all that these mechanisms are capable of producing the sort of biological complexity that we see in the world today uh, from an original single-celled animal. In fact, the evidence is positively against it. For one thing, the processes are just too slow. In their book, The Anthropic Cosmological Principle, John Barrow and Frank Tipler list 10 steps in the course of human evolution, like the development of aerobic respiration, the development of the eye, the development of mitochondria, the development of an inner skeleton. 10 steps in the course of human evolution each of which is so improbable that before it would occur, the sun would have ceased to be a main-sequence star and would have incinerated the earth. They conclude there has, emerged among, or they have, there has emerged a general consensus among evolutionists that the evolution of intelligent life is so improbable that it is unlikely to have occurred on any other planet in the entire visible universe. But if that is true, then why think that it evolved by chance on this planet? Now, a second problem with genetic mutation and natural selection is that they cannot explain the origin of irreducibly complex systems. This is the main point of Michael Behe's book, Darwin's Black Box, Behe, who is a microbiologist at Lehigh University, points out that certain systems in the cell, like the blood clotting mechanisms or the uh, hair-like structures called cilia, are like incredibly complicated microscopic machines which cannot function at all unless all of the parts are present and functioning. And thus they cannot evolve piecemeal. Surveying thousands of scientific articles on these systems, He discovered that virtually nothing has ever been written on how such irreducibly complex systems could have evolved by random mutation and natural selection. There is no scientific understanding whatsoever about how such systems originated. With respect to them, Darwinism has zero explanatory power. So the bottom line, it seems to me, is this, that what Darwinism envisions is so improbable that if it did occur, it must have been literally a miracle. In other words, evolution would be actually evidence for the existence of God. So, in conclusion, our sampling of the evidence from just three areas of contemporary science, the fine-tuning of the universe for life, the origin of life itself, and the development of biological complexity reveals signposts of transcendence pointing beyond the universe to its intelligent designer. And remember, the evidence here is cumulative. Improbability upon improbability upon improbability that all of these events should have taken place in succession by blind chance alone. The theist, I believe, is certainly within his rational rights to conclude that we are not here by accident, we are here by design.